So today I'm joined by my friend Bahari. Hello, Bahari. Hi. Bahari, can you present yourself a little bit before we jump right in? Well, yeah. So as you said, uh, everyone knows my name now. <laughs> so I, I'm Bahari. I come from Iran. And uh, for the last couple of years, I just moved to Europe uh, to study uh, and um, leave, you know, and work. So let's see what happens here. And is this the first time you lived elsewhere than in Iran? Uh, actually, it's the second time, but the first time was very, very short. It was only a couple of months uh, in Italy because uh, I had a scholarship after my bachelor's. Uh, uh, so I spent uh, a couple of months living in Italy. What and did you do there? Well, there uh, I... Um, took part in uh, some courses and uh, they were about uh, Italian literature, culture and also some courses about business and uh, economics, all in Italian. Where was that in Italy? Uh, so it was in uh, in a city called uh, Perugia, and oh. uh, they had this university, which is uh, like for foreigners, Università degli Studi per Stranieri, and uh, so uh, I was there. Oh, I only from Perugia. I only know uh, Ibachi. Ah, yeah, chocolate, <laughs> like very cliche. Okay, so tell me, bit what was it like growing up in Iran? Well, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not that easy to explain. Uh, and Take even, your time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I I lived in Iran uh, as a minority. So although it was my uh, my home country, uh, I was a minority there. So it's it's quite difficult to compare to those who live there, like uh, as as part of the majority group. Mm-hmm. But as a minority, uh, well, our schools were different. So we had our own schools, but we had the option to go to the like uh, normal schools, which are for everyone, let's say, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, so for the first two years, uh, I went to our own schools, but then uh, because of it was uh, because of the distance from my home, and uh, you know back then it wasn't like that easy to have uh, means of com- like transport and uh, move around the city. Uh, and Tehran is a very very big city, so uh, it was difficult for my parents to uh, take me to school and then pick me up. They were both working, so they moved me to another school near our home. And then uh, I had to to take some courses for, uh, like specific courses for our own uh, on, on the weekends, which was not that fun, <laughs> I would say. So imagine it. And, you wake up early during the week and also during the weekend. So so yeah. you never got a break? Uh, yeah, almost, I would say, <laughs> like that. <laughs> and what about like daily life, mm-hmm. your, your habits? What, what, what would your typical day look like? Uh, well, I would say almost like... Uh, Others, let's say, um, students uh, or other children my age. But, you know, there is always something different because uh, uh, you know that you belong to, to a minority group. So uh, and you have the option to have friends 
from like both groups, minority and ma- uh, majority group. But uh, but it's not that easy because sometimes uh, you're not accepted uh, mm. uh, by the majority, or sometimes uh, your attitudes are different or your interests. So this makes uh, you know making friends, socializing sometimes a bit uh, more difficult, and um, sometimes even um, it's it's like. You don't have the feeling that you belong, you know what I mean. So these are like challenges, and when you're you're an adult, it's quite uh, it's not even that easy to <laughs> to handle these these challenges. So imagine as a like uh, as a teenager or as a child, it's even more difficult. So that feeling of not belonging, is that something that shaped your day-to-day life a lot? Because that's the impression I'm getting from what you've been saying. Well, you know, not a lot, but but it has always been there. So it's something you cannot just easily say uh, or ignore it. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's always there, but I was very lucky that I had very good friends from both majority groups and also the minority ones. So, uh, but uh, not everyone is as lucky uh, as me, you know. So, and and uh, not, and also not everyone is willing to accept you when they see you uh, with a different attitude, with different opinions, uh, and even lifestyle. So, you know, sometimes in in your daily life, things are uh, different from one another. But but, but when it comes to like, I don't know, like uh, um, exercising, uh, I mean, doing sport, you know, or like, uh, I don't know, painting, drawing, uh, playing. these are these are common between children so it's it's yeah. totally normal but when it comes to like more specific things more detailed ones and the lifestyle uh, then you notice some differences and you cannot ignore them sometimes uh, some some children they are like curious they ask you why you are doing this or why do you think like that but some people they don't ask you they just uh, they just uh, think that what they do or what they believe is the the correct one you know is superior exactly yeah. and yeah. Uh, so well that's a societal issue and then the exactly. political pressure of course mm-hmm. as well but w- what kind of specific activities do you mean could you just give one example um yeah for example uh well uh, for us um, we had these uh, these associations that they uh, organized uh, different events for uh, like teenagers and also children, like different age groups, let's say. And these activities, they were, uh, they were like um, going on a picnic, uh, a, a one-day excursion, or um, some sports competitions or matches, you know. Uh, and um, both girls and boys, they could participate in in all these events together so they weren't like for example boys team girls team they were like mixed groups of boys and girls and um, well for the majority group I was in and also in, in the school it wasn't like that because we had uh, uh, schools for girls 
and schools for boys. So the events organized by schools or like associations, uh, you know, um, connected to schools, it was only girls events, boys events. Mm -hmm. So this is so one difference. Okay. Well, I guess this gender separation is also something that influences the way narratives are being shaped in uh, European media, let's say, or in Western media. Like, Iran doesn't have the best image in the Western world, but when you do some research on it, you actually know that this is political and we cannot conflate politics necessarily with the population and the communities. So would you say that the media portrayal that we see here in the West, does the Iranian uh, population justice, does it reflect the diversity of the population? Are there any alternative narratives that you would like to share maybe? Uh, well, you're uh, you're making a, actually a great point because uh, what we see and what we have been watching on uh, media in general about uh, my country, it's all about politics and it's all about uh, all about politicians, governments, and you know these political uh, somehow debates and I would say also games all politicians, both Western and Eastern, are playing. But behind the scenes, uh, you have also the population of, uh, of my country. Mm. And um, like any other country, even in Europe and even in, in America, I've noticed that, you know, not always the uh, population uh, agree with what, uh, whatever each and every politician is saying, you know. So, but media represent these uh, like these comments as like or sometimes even behaviors uh, like uh, it's uh, you know they generalize it they mm -hmm. sometimes overgeneralize it and yeah. even in my country we have like different levels different groups even in the majority group of the society so we have like any other country there are people from with different you know perspectives politically speaking, socially speaking, and even culturally speaking, you know, so, and what we see on different media, uh, I would say they are not always based on the truth, because they are reflecting viewpoint of, of the reporter of the, or the author of that article, you know, or, or uh, whatever program it is. So somehow it's their own impression, but we cannot also forget that each organization, its news agency or its like a social media, let's say, page, that they all have their own thoughts. And uh, sometimes uh, they are like uh, the power supporting them and also, um, you know, funding them. Yes. <laughs> they have control over what to say, how to say it and how to reflect it. Exactly. They are not neutral. They are definitely biased and influenced by politics. Exactly. So, well, I think, like, j j just a, a side note, although it's a very big topic, but we can see right now how censorship, for example, is being enacted in Europe when it comes to the question of 
Israel um, attacking or like actually doing a genocide in Gaza. And as soon as in Europe you take a stance that is pro-Palestinian, you are being censored. There have been cases in, in France and in Germany uh, where people who have advocated for Palestine have been censored and criminalized and there has been police brutality in Italy, for example, uh, towards people who protested peacefully for free Palestine. So um, my point is um, media is the media is uh, not neutral. Exactly. I totally agree. You know, and and uh, the the you know what we what we read, what we hear, and what we watch, uh, they, they they are like uh, just one version of the truth. Mm. And if you really want to know about any country, no matter my country or yours, or you know, and no matter where in this world, you just need to get in touch with with people. You should do your own research. You should mm -hmm. read about it. You know, it's not like you shouldn't accept and believe whatever you see or read or hear. So, you know, we, we are living in an era that we can try at least to find, to see, to, to see if we can find different versions of the truth or only one version. And that would help us, you know, mm -hmm. as like um, also with um, the war, for example, in uh, Ukraine and this awful situation in Palestine. So every media be, uh, belonging to one you know one part of the these uh, issues they are reflecting only their own part and what we see here in like most uh, in the majority of the media we have it, it shows that uh, who is uh, who has the most power you know politically speaking well and if it seems like there's a very simple judgment and a very simple story especially in these um, situations there is always a lot of nuance to it and it, it's not necessarily that simple or that straightforward so just saying well just demonizing another culture never gives the full picture it's like if you go back to Palestine we cannot say Zionism is the same thing as Judaism. And in the same vein, we cannot say being anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic because it's not the same thing. Zionism is political. Judaism is a religion. So <laughs> the argument like religion and, and politics are being conflated here. And uh, that is a very dangerous narrative I think Islamophobia has um, a role to play in this. And there is this, well, there are different versions of Islamophobia, but I'm speaking about the Western Islamophobia. Like, we don't necessarily understand Islam and we demonize it and we uh, conflate political Islam with the everyday practice, religious practice of the ordinary people. Do you want to comment on that? That's that's a bit difficult for me to comment because I think I I need to like 
uh, to do more research about this. Although I've uh, I've seen myself some some instances, let's say, while living in uh, outside my own country, um, but uh, but still, it's uh, I think it's better that I don't comment because I, I'm uh, I I just want to say that it's it's gonna be very helpful if uh, people try to not to connect uh, one person or one specific group to to the whole you know the, the how do you say it? like like the umbrella group let's say mm-hmm. uh, above it you know because um, for example if uh, you're working um, like uh, in a small company in a in one department so in your department if one person comes from uh, i don't know country x and the others come from country y so it's not true and it's not correct that uh, if the the person the colleague from country x if he or she does something that offends us you know or um or something that it it's unusual maybe also for us. It's not fair to, to say that, okay, so all people from country X are like this. All of them offend us, disturb us, bother us. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. everywhere we have good people with good intentions. Mm-hmm. And we also have the other group. So it's, yeah. it's not fair to generalize and say, for example, all uh, people from this religion or that religion are good while the others are not as good as they should be you know what I mean oh exactly um, there's this scholar uh, her name is Lady Volp I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but she wrote a paper that is called blaming culture for bad behavior and it says that when something happens in the global north One example I always like to use is the terrorist attack by Anders Breivik in uh, Norway. He was motivated by far-right ideology. And what usually happens when something like this happens in, in the West, we blame it on mental health if it's a white person. If it happens in the global South or if it's a, a person of color, it's culture. So there's a double standard there, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, I know. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about resistance lately. Um, how can we resist these, like, these essentialist perspectives? How can we resist this kind of, well, racism? Yes, it is racism as well that is involved there. How can we, what does the notion of resistance um evoke for you oh well that's a difficult question um uh, you know when i when i left iran uh it was uh it was before the movement uh the recent movement uh woman life freedom in iran so i'm sure for uh for those who lived there during this movement this word uh, would have another meaning and mm-hmm. um than me that that I was just you know what I know it's all based on what, what I heard what I saw and um, but uh, what I can say is that from my own experience so um, in uh, in my own opinion 
when I was uh, born, it was uh, uh, the war time. Uh, there was this war between Iran and Iraq in my mm. country. And back then, it was uh, around, you know, in 1980s. So back then, there were like no cell phones, no social media, and not this fast <laughs> internet that we have, you know. So uh, communication was very difficult. And you you couldn't just easily reach to your friends, relatives, uh, family members to see how they are doing. And beside that, they were all these uh, like uh, alarms, going to the shelters, leaving your home or even moving to the like to the suburbs of the city just just to stay alive, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, all these um, these runnings, all these ruins that you saw and these awful sounds, you know, and these experience uh, and also uh, the people didn't have also access to many daily uh, things they needed like products you know mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. food drinks uh, yeah. uh, you know uh, so but still many people tried to to stay and not to flee the country because they wanted to build it all over again. It was a very, very difficult time, but people stayed like united together. Everyone mm. played their own part to be brave, you know, to be uh, still hopeful and to try to to start from scratch and to to build this this country and their own city or sometimes even their own community. And this is what resistance looks like. So when, although you have many difficulties and it's both like emotionally, physically, mentally, it's, you know, it's all over you. And, but still you stand up and Mm -hmm. you take a step because you just want to to try to, to have a better life, to have a better community, better society. So... For me, this this is what I remembered, and this is somehow what I learned when I was a child during that time. Maybe then I didn't notice it, you know. But when you come older, you you look back, you see how uh, how does uh, uh, all these people survived, you know, uh, mm. this situation, and mm. this this is a kind of resistance for me. So you mentioned the word community a few times now. Um, what could, could you explain a bit more? What is the role of community in that resistance? Well, they, they have a very important role actually because uh, so each community they have their own differences, but they also have some similarities. So in those challenging times and in those horrible moments of war, uh, they all forget about their own differences. They just saw the similarities and they just they just tried to be to be to help each other, you know, to be there to care for each other. And uh, um, sometimes on, on a daily basis, you know, we, we are so focused on our differences that we really forget that there might be some similarities there that we can focus on. And maybe that's just a starting point to get together, 
you know, to see how different we are and uh, and just also uh, um, acknowledge also our differences, you know, S- uh, someone different or something different is not always a bad thing. Difference is not a threat. It's constructed as a yeah. threat. But we know the reasons for that. I mean, that is not my point. It's just my my opinion. Well, opinion. It's not an opinion because I've done a lot of research on this as well. And it's always the strive for power over resources. So ultimately, it's about money and power. Um, but then what you describe is like a community of mutual aid, of mutual care, that where, where the differences don't matter. We just look out for each other, even if we don't know, even for people we don't know. That is what we see happening in Gaza as well right now. It's, of course, very tragic. And I'm not saying this is a, a good thing, but there is a beauty in the way you can see the mutual care. So I think war brings out the worst. It really shows you how the quest for power can bring out the worst in humanity. At the same time, it also makes us see now more than ever because we have social media and we can basically see it live. It also shows us that there is something else, that there is something like true compassion, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. In in a very tragic way, unfortunately. unfortunately. And I think you... You mentioned similarities. I think the most basic similarity is sometimes forgotten. It's our humanity. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. So true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit about your life in Europe. But before that, I also want to address that Iran has a rich uh, history of philosophy and literature. Can you talk a little bit about their roles in Iran, uh, what influence have they had and how they shaped the Iranian culture? And is there anything you would like to highlight in particular, something that has been, um, like something that you like in particular, something that has a specific meaning to you? Uh, well, yeah. So, you know, we, we've had... Um Many great and uh, also quite famous, I would say, philosophers in Iran. But Iran is mostly famous for its uh, literature, art, and uh, mathematics, and also astronomy. So, and and literature between all of these and also art together, they they are very uh, important elements of our culture, actually. So, we have different... Uh, styles uh, when it comes to poems and uh, the great poets we have. The works and the poems of many of uh, the classic ones are already translated in different languages other than English. And they are also in different universities, groups of researchers studying, uh, you know, reading, uh, interpreting these uh, uh, poems. And and also in, in modern ones, among the modern 
poets, we, we have very new styles, uh, so they, they also very nice. And some of them have been also translated in English. I haven't checked about other languages as they are more modern. Maybe they, ha- they, they are, so uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't... Uh, uh, talk about that because I'm not sure. <laughs> the, but one thing just to show uh, how important literature is, we, uh, for example, uh, we have uh, like uh, in family uh, reunions and gatherings, uh, we usually have, the, for example, grandparents uh, reading poems. Oh, and yeah, yes. so everyone sits down, uh, sit down around them, you know, they read poems uh, and uh, then we talk about it and even in some like festivities and uh, ceremonies uh, this is part of the ritual uh, mm-hmm. to to read poems nice. and uh, and also um, we have like these also epic poems and we have this narrative style that we we had it before now we also have it but before to be honest it was uh, more than uh, nowadays but still uh, they were like uh, some people wearing like customs sometimes without custom just only maybe one or two people they narrated these um, epic poems uh, and even stories in the streets you know during Mm. the weekend or festivities and people gather around them sometimes with a bit of like music i would say like traditional one uh, as a background so uh, this this is a very important part of our culture and i think this is what we are quite famous about <laughs> so there's a real culture of storytellers yeah yeah <laughs> i like that i love i love poetry and yeah, yeah. you know me too because uh, these are all, uh, I think, part of uh, many of uh, us uh, from childhood memories, very mm. sweet childhood memories, because I still remember sitting and listening to my grandfather uh, reading poems, reading stories, you know, uh, and even adults. So uh, this is what is interesting about this, because uh, it's not something only for uh, the youngest uh, members of the family. You know, oh. everyone sits down, uh, listens to them. They participate even nowadays, uh, also before, but maybe we have uh, nowadays because we have more cafes. So uh, people um, ha- organize these uh, small events, sometimes also big ones. And uh, they gather together in a cafe. They read uh, poems of us uh, of one uh, poet, and they try to interpret it. They, they try to see different, you know, uh, in point of from the point of view of uh, like uh, literature, also the mm-hmm. the styles, the words uh, beside the interpretation. So, and we also have some competitions. Uh, that you have to know different poems. You you compete with one another, like uh, a poetry slam. Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. But you yeah. know, uh, um, a bit like different. So it's like this: uh, you uh, you say a part of a short part of a poem, you know, and uh, I should uh, start uh, saying uh, and narrating or um, talking about another poem, starting with the last letter you finished with 
So you know, so yeah. it's like this, oh, yeah. it, it <laughs> and so, it sounds goes like on. <laughs> so, sounds like fun, but that I guess that means that you have to have a large repertoire of poetry that you actually know by heart, yeah. right? Yes, exactly. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> um, okay, well. I just want to touch on a very last issue that I already hinted at before. Um, so how would you describe your life in Europe, especially when it comes to community building? Is there anything that catches or caught your attention? Is there anything that feels dissonant to you? Because this podcast is called Complete Dissonance. So um, are there dissonances <laughs> in the way life in Europe unfolds? Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, living in Europe is, uh, is actually a great experience. But it has its own challenges. So, mm, like, uh, yeah. So you know, it's it's like I think living uh, in any other part of the world, any other continent. I would say because uh, although there is a fantastic diversity in terms of like uh, cultures, people, languages, there are also misunderstandings. There are also stereotypes. Uh, mm. That, uh, that people have. I mean, each person ha has this, you know. But but sometimes people they are not aware that they are so attached to stereotypes and they are so biased that mm. that they don't give the person the chance to prove herself or himself to to show who he or she really is, you know. And and um, they just see you as uh, coming from. Uh, another part of the board different from them and sometimes some of them just focus on this uh, you know this this difference but they are there are also some uh, some people here that they are very willing you know to know you to mm. get they give you the chance to to show yourself to them to Uh, they spend time with you to to know you better and then mm. to judge you but but some people they just uh, judge uh, before exactly even knowing you. exactly yeah. and they just uh, pass by you know without uh, yeah. yeah and I, I personally have a little bit of an issue with the idea that someone needs to prove themselves to others first before they can be accepted for who they are. Uh, I don't think anyone has anything to prove because, again, we're all human. But then, of course, that is a big... Um, this is not to invalidate your argument. I know that it's very real, but it's a, a very current um, obstacle in, in uh, migration, um, in the migration debate. And I've been doing... A lot of research on migration and um, well there's this trope that the migrant is only palatable if um, they contribute to the economy so would you say that as soon as you can prove that you have a job and that you contribute to the economy 
Do you think that makes you not like not you in person, but the general you? But you can also talk about your own experience, of course. But do you feel like people are more easily accepted if they can show that they abide by our rules of having quote unquote a decent job, um, contributing to the economy, leading the same kind of life? What do you think? Uh- <laughs> Yeah, I think it's like that, to be honest, unfortunately, you know, Um, I mean, uh, on on the one hand, it makes sense because uh, then you're working in an environment that uh, uh, in that country, in the uh, the host country, you know, and um, you can you are, as you said, like economically speaking, you're (laughs) participating uh, like uh, more actively <laughs> so uh, these are th- these makes you to be seen uh, um, otherwise you know uh, uh, you know more worthy person yeah. yeah exactly but but on the other hand I think it's not fair because sometimes we have we and we bring um, our own experiences and knowledge Um, which can also uh, be combined with uh, um, like European or American or whatever we are going, whatever continent we are speaking, you know, uh, standards and uh, also like procedures and knowledge because, you know, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, they can together when they are uh, connected, they can, uh, maybe they can have, they can be like more effective even. You know, but you should be um, willing to accept also this that uh, sometimes you 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 can't see or you can't like people. I mean, can't uh, accept that maybe there is uh, some some good experience there or some knowledge behind this person, and we should use it. Why not? But that is still. Uh rooted in the idea that we can make profit out of diversity exactly yeah <laughs> yeah that is a bit my issue here because i mean within the capitalist paradigm it makes sense allegedly to um contribute or to to expect everybody to contribute to the economy but if we shifted the paradigm to one of humanity that wouldn't necessarily be an imperative for us to accept everybody's dignity yeah everybody's worthiness yeah so for me personally it's also this paradigm that is the problem yeah and and you know this is actually one of the uh biggest challenges a migrant has you know yeah. to face uh, in this process it, it it affects us both uh, both socially and personally and professionally you know from every perspective because uh, when uh, we want also to make friends uh, and to socialize with other people of course. it's normal yeah you know and 
and and the the whole process of integration uh, to the, to the uh, society of the host country the, this is like uh, like a very very uh, difficult challenge for migrants because of exactly what you mentioned well um integration is also a term that is a bit controversial right now because um integration includes the idea that the migrant needs to assimilate as much as possible. And governments are moving away from the word integration and they're moving towards some some concepts that sound more soft, but that, well, in my view, um, wash a bit over the harshness of integration (laughs) but don't necessarily change the measures that are being put in place to um, create a more open society because certain issues are just not being addressed i'm speaking of uh, a decolonial approach for example it's just not happening it's something that is buried in the past and i think now we can see very well with, uh, again, Gaza, that colonialism is not just in the past. And we can see it when we look at what is happening in the Congo, for example. We can see it uh, with uh, Tigray. And there are other examples. It's just that they are not making the headlines. There are so many examples of this. And this is something that is not being addressed in the West. It's just this pervasive colonial amnesia and I think we also need to uh, appeal to the responsibility of a host society it's not just the migrant that needs to integrate and assimilate the host society who are in a position of power who are in a position of privilege also need to understand what is the reason for migration they need to understand migration itself. But that is not something that is on the agenda most of the time. The the debate usually stops at how can we make foreigners fit in? Even if we don't say it this bluntly, it's basically what it is. I mean, I've, I've looked through the legislation of this country, but then in other countries, there, there, there are some Western nations that have even more restrictive immigration policies. I think as long as we don't take this debate a step further, we're, we're not going to make that progress. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, we should recognize that when two people want to be uh, in a, like a relationship or when they want to communicate with each other, both of them should be active participants. Exactly. Not, not only one of them. <laughs> it's a two-way street. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bahri, I think that is a very good word to sum this conversation up. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. With pleasure. Thank you for listening. And as always, I hope you'll tune in for the next one.